The Diamondbacks might have played their best three games of the season against the Chicago Cubs, sweeping all three at Chase Field that not only drastically improved their playoff outlook, but also a second path into the playoffs by taking pole position for the second wildcard spot in the National League playoff picture. We'll discuss that series, how the D-backs were able to showcase what they are on national television, an update on the wildcard race, as well as a preview of the upcoming two-game series against the Giants in which the Diamondbacks can bury San Francisco. We'll discuss this on today's episode of Snakes on the Diamond. And welcome back, everyone. Hope you had a good weekend. The D-backs certainly had a good weekend. As mentioned, a sweep of the Chicago Cubs. And also, unfortunately, uh, Wes is not here tonight. He fell sick after attending yesterday's game at Chase Field. It was a pretty crowded game. I think it was 26,000 people. And we actually got to meet in person. There's a video on his uh, uh, Twitter, at Bayer Wesley. We'll put that up on the stream. Kind of just showcasing... If you want to see the video, there's a picture on the Snakes on the Diamond Twitter. Make sure to follow that if you can find it at on Twitter at SnakesOTDiamond because there are not enough characters for Snakes on the Diamond. But that's how it is. But uh, now you can follow me, Michael McDermott, on Twitter at MichaelMcDMLB. I'm a beat writer for Fan Nation's Inside the Diamondbacks, which you can find on Sports Illustrated at si.com slash MLB slash Diamondbacks. Have a couple articles put out there today. We'll talk about the Mike Hazen Boston rumors, as well as Tori Lovello's management of the bullpen, which has been much better in the past week or so. So anyways, going into that Chicago series, the Diamondbacks didn't look like they were going to catch up to Chicago. And we said, I said this in an earlier episode when the Diamondbacks were going into Wrigley Field. It's like, it feels like... And they were down four games going into that Chicago series. And I said, I'm not sure the D-backs are going to catch up to Chicago. Of course, ironically, we look at this, uh, what now, 11 days later, and the Carnage D-backs ended up pulling off a miracle, taking six of seven against the Cubs and passed them in the wild card standings. And really only a lackluster performance in the final game of the series in Chicago. Is the only way that they got a win in that series. Diamondbacks, of course, getting a trio of one-run wins. But I felt like uh, the first and the last game were their best two games against the Chicago Cubs in those seven games they played in the last 11 days. And then, uh, despite that, despite the challenge that facing a team like Chicago who had been very hot in the end of July, August. And it looked like back when the D-backs played their first game against Chicago was a race for the third wildcard spot. But you have to give the Diamondbacks credit. They saw opening, they took it, and they gave the Cubs everything they could handle, and then some. Pitching was very good in Chicago. The D-backs hitting was very good at Chase Field. And Torrey, I believe, has stepped it up as a manager which has allowed the D-backs to navigate some tight situations in large part due to a bullpen that has performed in the month of September. And we have to give this bullpen flowers because if we're going to rail on the bullpen for not getting the job done in July and the early part of August, we have to, to uh, give them credit for when they're the reason why they're winning in September. The D-backs being 10-7 and 7 in September this year. 
in large part due to a bullpen that has a 2-3-4 ERA in the 17 games played so far. And a 17 game in 17 games in 17 days is never easy to navigate especially when you're playing some playoff teams like the Orioles, the Cubs, and of course, there's the trap series of the Rockies and the Mets. D-backs kind of fell into that trap in New York for whatever reason. They can't beat the Mets this year, this year last year, any year. It's like since 1999, they just don't know how. It's like they just have problems with that team. But uh, the Chicago series, game one, they went up against Justin Steele, who going into that game looked like the NL Cy Young Award winner. He, may, he actually pitched a decent game, but two mistakes, two pitches he'd like to have back in that game. Both were three-run homers on sliders that were slightly elevated. Let's say the middle third elevation-wise in the strike zone. Gurriel's was more in, but for a right-hand here, you're looking for something in a middle in anyway. So that was a pitch that played in the Gurriel's bat path. And no surprise, he hit. he had a big series against the Cubs. And then uh, the most unlikely hit in the series came from Alec Thomas, who uh, before the home run against Steele was 8 for 68 against left-handed pitching on the season. Ended up getting a meatball slider and lined one out just over the fence in right field for what was a three-run home run that gave the D-backs the cushion they would need to withstand uh, pretty, I guess you can say, Nerve-wracking ninth inning. I don't think the D-backs were ever in danger of losing that game, but certainly didn't do themselves any favors because they had to burn another reliever, which actually came back to bite them in the next game in a weird way. Not necessarily in the uh, wins and losses standpoint, but Burton has in that the bullpen was exhausted going into... Uh, since they would have to cover basically nine... Yeah, they had to cover nine innings after Davies had a... Pretty rough fifth inning where he couldn't retire a batter. But throughout the series, it never felt like the D-backs were necessarily in danger of losing control of the game. And that may be in large part because of Tory Lavelle knowing when to pull his starting pitcher. The D-backs actually pulled their starting pitch in all three games. They had a lead when the starting pitcher threw his last pitch of the game. For uh, game one, Fought had a 3 nothing lead after pitching five and a third fantastic inning. Six strikeouts, just the one walk. And uh, that was Fott's best start since San Francisco, in my opinion. Oh, wait, no, sorry. Best start since San Diego, sorry. I forgot he took a no-hitter in the seventh in that one and threw seven scoreless. That was Fott's best start since then. Looked very good. I think there will be a time where Brandon Fott will not be pulled at 73 pitches. But you have to consider the fact that it was a times to the order penalty. Hitters have are hitting 359 with no PS above 1,000. That is a bad matchup no matter what the pitch count is. And it was a situation they were up 3 nothing at the time. And there was a runner at base. So you only, there were one base runner away from having a Cody Bellinger situation. So Torrey decides to set, uh, try and nip that in the bud before that inning can build. And that's, I think that's a sign of good managing. Making sure the other team can't build an inning. So uh, so they brought in Sal Frank to get the last two outs the sixth inning in game one. A little bit of luck there as a hap liner. Found his hit right at Perdomo. It was 106 miles an hour, but the D-backs were a victim. Had some good and bad luck throughout the series. I think it luck evens out over the course of a season. And then uh, gets Bellinger to make uh, soft contact right at Cattell Marte. So 
rookie getting the job done there, and that kind of set. And then Thomas ended up pushing it six nothing in the fi- next inning. That makes that decision look better. And then uh, Ryan Thompson, who's been a big uh, a big bullpen addition in the month of September. It's no coincidence that he's been pitching well. Well, in his addition to the bullpen is giving the Diamondbacks a useful arm, and the more useful arms they acquire, the more useful arms they pick up, the more competent this bullpen is. You got everyone talks about Seawall, obviously, since the D-backs paid a very high price since they couldn't get their closer for internal closer option for the season, and I think that's a trade that Diamondbacks will probably regret in two or three years. But they make the playoffs now. The Paul Seawall trade is. Uh, not necessarily lost for the D-backs, I would say. And then Kevin Ginkle, obviously, is the D-backs' best reliever in any given situation. It's just, uh, it could be just a thing where Ginkle kind of went from a guy that was an okay reliever last year, where he was not as good as the number. I think it was a case where he was not as good as the numbers, whereas this year, he's as good as the numbers are, if not better. And uh, it kind of, it definitely is kind of miffling that Ginkle actually threw a pitch in AAA this year. Thing how he progressed. I know first, I would say the first two months of the season, he probably didn't look like a back end guy, but since they brought him back up from Reno, Ginkle has been about as lights out as you can get. And then, uh, so they had a marathon game. It never, even, even though it was, uh, the Cubs took like three leads in the extra innings, it's like, I felt confident the D backs were going to be able to match in that series. It's a weird, it's weird. I usually like to joke that the D-back season is over at the first sign of the game is over at the first real sign of adversity for the game. But uh and you'll want to see and so, and uh I like to make jokes about what uh the D-backs falling apart at the first sign of adversity which they have never done at all this year. By the way, that's the hallmark of a team that should be in the postseason. They haven't even with their, they may fail, but they won't give up. Kind of mentality. So they ca- they came back four three in the tenth, six uh, five four in the eleventh. Couldn't quite finish off the Cubs in the twelfth after getting a zero from Mansupply. But in the thirteenth, they got it. Do- uh, they got it done by a matter of inches. A Rivera liner, pinball Swanson can uh, pinballs off of Wesneski. Uh, Swanson can't quite make the play, and then Swanson didn't have a great series defensively, especially the last two games. Swanson can't make the play. The ball gets by him. Run scores from third, and the winning runs at second. Unfortunately, in that case, the D-backs couldn't run for Longoria, although uh, Longoria did everything he could, and it's, uh, we talk about veteran players doing stepping up going into that series, and uh, Longoria was... I, th- I don't remember if Longoria was mentioned in the article, but... Longoria obviously drew a key walk in that inning after the the Cubs won the matchup battle with the uh, bringing in Wesneski when the D-backs sent in Longoria to pinch hit against Smiley. But then uh, Longoria did a good job of anticipating what could happen on the field, knowing that Gabriel Moreno, who is on an absolute hot tear right now, and I'll be honest, I expected Moreno to get a hit in that situation. That's how good he's been. Moreno does what he does best. He does his best Miguel Cabrera impression, just lines a hard ground ball to the right side. And then Longoria gets a good secondary lead, and getting an extra step closer to home plate ended up proving the difference, and some nifty handiwork at the end on this slide 
proved to be the difference. Longoria called called it all instinct. Does a good job of getting his hand around the glo- away from the glo- Jan Gones' glove while the latter is uh, diving to try and get any piece of Longoria before he can touch home plate. Of course, Longoria prevented that from happening. Ended up scoring, and it was like, that's a great, I think it's a great lesson, like I said. Fundamentals are just as important as speed. And in the case of Longoria, it's getting that good secondary lead. It can't really say it's a, a good slide, although that Longoria says it was more instinct, not really planned. But good slide. You still got a bit of athleticism left in that body, in that, uh, got a little bit of juice left. And it's uh, oftentimes a base, a stolen base and a caught ceiling sometimes comes down to a slide. Guys that slide well will typically be less likely to tag out. And that's something, uh, that's why Corbin Carroll has high stolen base total with a uh, high efficiency. You rarely ever see him overslide the base. Anyway, getting back into game three, the Diamondbacks, of course, uh, because of the wild card race tightening up, the uh, series finale against Chicago was flexed into Sunday Night Baseball, so it was on ESPN in front of a national audience, which is uh, the first time in five years the Dimebacks were on Sunday Night Baseball. Last time was 2018 on Mother's Day. I was at that game as well. And that game was kind of a disappointment because Archie Bradley blew a save. I know I, Archie Bradley gave up the winning runs to uh, Mark Reynolds to a two-run homer for Washington after getting literally called up for the minor leagues that day. But uh but the D-backs were able to, uh, basically, they controlled the game from the start. They were able to navigate a leadoff double from Ian Happ, thanks to Nelson getting two big strikeouts. Really good at bat against Morrell. It was a battle, but then he was able to throw a perfect slider on the corner. All Morrell could do was flail at it. And then he hits that same corner with a fastball against Bellinger in 98. It was his best fastball of the night. Hits 98 on the corner, and uh, that ended up being the difference in the game early, especially, and that stopped, and that allowed D-backs, to, and I guess you can say prevent the Cubs from doing too much damage to Nelson in that game. So in the bottom of the first, uh, D-backs had two good at-bats to start the game. Cattell Marte had a much better at-bat first time up after he had a pretty awful at-bat that allowed the Cubs to survive one more inning. But Drew a leadoff walk, and then Corbin Carroll gets a does a good job of staying back on an off-speed pitch, hits a little soft liner in the center field to put move Marte up to second. And then the, I think the biggest play of the game came from Dansby Swanson, once again not being able to make a play on a chopper that got past the pitcher. I think Swanson tried to – if any other runner on the Dimebacks lineup, I think that play works, but it's Corbin Carroll. you got to know who's at first – it's one of those things where Gold Glover forgot who was running at first base. Like Dansby Swanson will win the National League Gold Glove, but the Cubs series may be defined by the two play. The, the Cubs season could be defined by the two plays he didn't make against the Dimebacks. In that situation that gave the D-backs an extra base runner that was ruled a fielder's choice because uh, Swanson should have thrown that ball to first base on Fam. And then uh, Walker comes up with one. Uh, Walker ends up coming with base load, nobody out. Tries to protect his strikes, protect against a changeup that worked its way off the stri- out of the strike. Somebody gets enough wood on it to get to basically hit a pop up that maybe was like a foot out of Nico Horner's reach. And of course, Horner's another guy that could win a Gold Glove this year. 
just out of his reach. And then uh, it's one of those situations where Carroll, you got, you're kind of caught in no man's land. Maybe it was one step too close to second base because he was thrown out by, a f- by about one one stride at third base. Although, ironically enough, uh, the D-backs were gifted and out on the previous batter, so it's like they gave it back. But ultimately, oh, wow, luck evens out. They were supposed to score three runs that inning. Gurriel, absolutely hot in the month of September, comes up with another big base hit, get, puts the D-backs up 2 nothing, and then Rivera... With a very competent bat, gets a sack fly to right field to score Fam. And then, I mean, score Walker, sorry. Fam scored on the Guriel hit. So then uh, scores Walker, D backs to the three spot, and they never trailed for that game. And then uh, Nelson was a little bit shaky after that first inning. And at a minimum, early on, he definitely wasn't efficient. The Cubs had some hard hit balls against him. And I think they had four balls hit over 100. The first twelve or thirteen hitters, I don't remember, but they were on. They were pretty much. They were kind of on him, or they were really weren't. But uh, once they were on him, it was pretty. Once it was pretty obvious the Cubs weren't getting fooled by what Nelson was throwing. It was Tory made. Tory got Luis Frias up in the bullpen in the third inning when Nelson loaded the bases, with nobody out. But then, uh, Nelson, but then the D backs converted, made it a couple of nice plays to get out of the inning. Nelson gives it a ground ball to second base. Marte has the wherewithal to chase the runner at first out of the baseline. Chase the runner out of the baseline and then complete the double play throwing the first base. I don't think the tag was on there because it looked like the umpire signaled out of the baseline, the second base umpire. But Marte does a good job of running the base runner out of the baseline, basically. In that situation, if you're a base runner, you basically stop and take out the second baseman. Stop stop and... uh, Make the second base make a decision. In Cattell's case, he does the right play. And then uh, a hard hit ball into the left center field gap. Gurriel chases it down. A pretty interesting route. He kind of goes over and then back on that one. And, uh, of course, uh, Gurriel obviously still remind. It's still a little bit of a reminder that he's a converted infielder, so, he does, so his jumps aren't necessarily great. But once he gets going, he does a pretty good job of closing off ground. And then the, the improvements that he's made defensively this year, based on what I saw in May, like Guriel is a is a fine left fielder now. Like he can compet, he can, he's better than competent. I would say in June, July he was more competent. Now he, I say uh, he can make he's he can make some highlight reel catches, and he also had another nice catch on a ball hit in front of him. That was hit down the line. And that was that was he had to make a sliding catch on because it, it was hit towards the line. In this case of Guriel, again, uh, covering ground once he got going. So, Dimebacks didn't do much against Wicks after that first inning. They definitely had some traffic, but just couldn't quite get that big hit until the fifth inning. And what happened is uh, Jordan Lawler finally got a ball to touch outfield grass, a roller up the middle that perfectly split Swanson and Horner. It's like it's not every day that you get a ball between two gold glovers like that. And it just dies right at the edge of the... Uh, edge of the turf, well, the outfield turf, and with Lawler's speed, uh, Nor- Horner has no play once he has to uh, backhand it. Then that's up Marte. Marte gets a change up, a little bit fooled out in front, but he got it airborne and hit hard enough and at the right launch angle for a home run. It was, I think, it was like ninety-seven-three off the bat, and it was a. Uh, 
pull, uh, pull 97 mile an hour ball, fly ball can still leave the ballpark if it's pull side, in my opinion, which it was. Marte obviously pulled it to right field. Just got over the fence just enough, and it, it felt like at that point the D-backs had control of the game once Marte got it over the wall. Then at that point, 5-2. Then in the seventh inning, Gurriel comes up with another hit. Or was it sixth inning? I think it was sixth inning. Gurriel comes up with a big hit. Dynamax, Tori Lowell brings in Alec Thomas pinch run because that's a good move because not only does that uh, give you more speed on the field with the lead, also you upgrade your outfield defense. Thomas in center, Carroll in left. That's a defensive upgrade. Although not by much. Like I said, Gurriel is competent enough that you can leave him in there. And then Thomas's speed comes up huge in the first at bat. Jace uh, hit and run with a 2-2 count. Peterson executes it perfectly. Hits a liner down the left field line with Thomas already at second base before the ball gets down. And that was a case where the D-backs needed to send Thomas there all the way. Send Thomas all the way if uh, Hap and Hap was going to have to leave his feet to keep the ball from getting in the corner, which kind of defeats the purpose of preventing the ball from getting in the corner. Because with Thomas's speed, if Hap has to leave his feet, there's no play at home play, as it proved out to be. By the time the relay throw got to Wisdom, Alec Thomas had pretty much already belly, uh, had already glided across home plate. And that was that ended up being a huge tack-on run from a bullpen standpoint, as uh, it prevented it allowed the D-backs to rest Ginkle and Seawald, and they had threw on a few warm-up pitches in that game, but that's still... Uh, Better than throwing on in the game itself. Also, Bryce Jarvis came in after that. Jarvis retired all six hitters. And I thought he had his best stuff that I've seen in the games that he's pitched. He had his best stuff physically. His fastball look, his fastball had some zip on it. His one strikeout came on off basically a challenge fastball to Christopher Morrell. And then uh, the good fastball and the location of the fastball allowed him to jump ahead of hitters, and then they made a lot of a lot of hidden outs basically had him on the defensive and that's kind of just uh like i said the development of a young pitcher who has the confidence to pitch at this level and i think jarvis could be a guy that i think jarvis could be a guy that could be an interesting pitcher in the postseason due to his ability to give you somewhere between three and 12 outs if he's effective so with the win against the Cubs, the Diamondbacks are in the second wild card spot in the NL with the Marlins and the Reds closing in on the Diamondbacks and the Cubs. It's now a five and the Giants still kind of lurking in the shadows. So it's a five team race for two playoff spots, which is better than four teams jockeying for one like it was 11 days ago. So looking at the playoff picture here, you can see it right there, and I'll have it blown up here. And you can see right there, Philadelphia pretty much has a death grip on the number four seed. They would have to lose five times for any of the teams below them to really factor into the top wildcard spot, which would be home field advantage for the wildcard series, which would be October 3rd through 5th because I checked the schedule earlier today. The way the play, obviously, there's a lot to sort out. There are Dimex, Cubs, and Marlins are tied in the loss column at 72 apiece. And uh, checking 
Checking the scores for tonight. For a set of games. I believe the Marlins were playing the Mets. The Marlins lose to the Mets. So that's good news for the Diamondbacks. And the Reds uh, knocked since knocked around the Twins. So, with that in mind, the Diamondbacks are now half a game. So the Diamondbacks are now the only two teams with seventy-two losses. Now are the Diamondbacks and the Cubs, who were both idle today. Then you got San Francisco at seventy-four losses, two games back of the Diamondbacks, and two games back in the loss column from the Diamondbacks and the Cubs. And the Diamondbacks could easily make it four if they could win back-to-back games, but it's going to be difficult because I expect Logan Webb to pitch the second game. So we'll move into the Giant series. So the Diamondbacks have a chance to knock out a division opponent from the playoff race. So that's always something you play for. Uh, San Francisco's last gasp coming at Chase Field. I feel like the D-backs need to win both games, but it's not necessarily... A situation where if the D-backs don't do it, their season's in jeopardy. It just means they won't have a commanding wildcard spot and they probably need their competition to lose another game. So try and stay ahead of the other teams in the loss column. So I don't believe San Francisco has named a starter for either game. However, based on rest patterns, I expect uh, Kyle Harrison to start to tomorrow night left-hander that they left rookie left-hander has a very big fastball doesn't let the radar gun but it's a very hard to square up fastball okay secondary stuff it's um against the dimex team that can be a little bit over aggressive it can be a problem although the d-back showed a much better ability to adjust to secondary stuff in the second time they saw the cubs versus the first it was a little bit in a little bit of a funk they were able to adjust, I suppose, seeing the same type of pitcher five times in the last week or so. So a pitcher that relies a lot on off-speed pitches being their primary put-away. So they're going to see a much different pitcher, I think, with Harrison, who relies more on a fastball. So that'll be an interesting adjustment for Game 1. Game 2, Logan Webb, who has always pitched well against the Diamondbacks. Well, he just pitch, pitches well against everybody, but especially the Diamondbacks. Webb has like a 2.57 ERA or something like that against the Diamondbacks this year. And similar numbers against the D-backs in his career. Uh, but he'll be going up against Merrill Kelly. But the Diamondbacks will also be sending their top two starters, Zach Gallon and Merrill Kelly. Kelly pitches... Uh, aside from getting... Hammered in New York his last time out. Kelly's been pitching pretty well. Gallon's been a little bit iffy of late. But uh, if Gallon can find his fastball command again, I think he'll be fine. I would still give the pitching matchup edge to the Diamondbacks in game one. Game two is, I think, a toss-up, which against Logan Webb, you'll take a toss-up. You know, the interesting thing about Webb, and I'm looking at his splits from an OPS standpoint, he's only had one month where the OPS is above 700, and that was the first month of the year. Since then, he's been pretty good at preventing opposing hitters from really doing much damage to him. 
No, wait, no. This is career. Which makes it even more impressive when you look at it that, from that angle. So against the Diamondbacks, career-wise, nine starts, five and two with a two six two ERA, and a three three to one strikeout the walk ratio. You backs are going to be in for a tough matchup on Wednesday. So winning Tuesday will be winning tomorrow's game will be paramount. Being Kyle Harrison. If the Diamondbacks are able to sweep both games against the Giants, the Giants are at seventy six losses, and I feel like. The Giants are in a situation where two more losses could be it for them, because I think the top the two wild card spots are going to have eighty. It's going to take eighty five wins, I think, to get the third wild card spot, and the Diamondbacks certainly could use a tiebreaker against the Giants after losing the tiebreaker to Miami and Cincinnati in a pretty awful way, and they do have the head to head tiebreaker against Chicago, against the Cubs. But then when you look at the schedule, and then obviously the schedule comes into play. The Marlins are playing the Mets, and division games are kind of up in the air. The Reds are playing the Twins, and you're, the Twins are probably the worst. Uh, have the worst record of playoff teams, I think. They're only one fewer loss than the Diamondbacks up to this point at 79-71. I was going to joke about the D-backs being potentially division winner if they played in the AL Central, although they'd be half a game back. Of course, it's pretty weird about the Twins. The Twins have a run differential better than Toronto. And Toronto is in the playoffs and they're not. So you wonder how much a team underperforms compared to some of the teams in the uh, National League playoffs. Like somebody in the National League playoffs will have a negative run differential. It definitely... It definitely brings into question how you, particularly useful the run differential stat is. Especially when trying to predict kind of the final stretch. It's pretty interesting. The last team to uh, the last team in a full season and not some weird fluky 2020 year bullshit uh, to get into the playoffs was the 2007 Diamondbacks who won the division with a minus 20 run differential. I don't think we'll be seeing any of that thing of that sorts, but we'll see a team with 85, 86 wins with like a run differential of like minus 30. Diamondbacks being potentially one of those teams and the Marlins possibly another one. Although the way the Mar- uh usually the hallmark of a team that has a negative run differential but a really good record you can ask if those it, they're either lucky or they're just very good in close games. Like if you look at the Marlins, they have a n- shutdown bullpen. And the Marlins are a team you don't want to hand a lead to after the sixth inning because they have AJ Puck, Andrew Nardi, Tanner Scott as their top three options. Although they're all left-handed, that's just coincidence more than anything. They don't have. I don't think they're the type of pitchers that worry about the handedness of the hitter. And then uh, the Marlins can slug pretty well. They have guys who can hit hit some homers between Jazz Chisholm, Jesus Sanchez, uh, Jake Berger, who they base practically stole from the White Sox. We'll have to see what they got for him.
So they got left handed pitcher, uh, left hand pitching prospect Jake Etter. So basically, for Chicago, they must really love this guy. They give up a uh, give up a third baseman of five years to control, and even if uh, Berger were to play himself off the field, he'd still be a quality DH option that can hit thirty five homers and give the Marlins instant offense whenever he connects. So I think the Marlins have a pretty good team going there. Going there, and the Mar- like I said, the Marlins are a much better team than they were a month, uh, two months ago. When it looked like they were going to fizzle out a little bit, but then with their lineup being much better with the additions of Bell and Berger, I don't think the Marlins are going away. In fact, I, I think the Marlins have just as good odds of reaching the playoffs as the D-backs do at this point. And when I say odds, I don't actually look up the numbers. That's just my gut feeling. Just watching how well they're playing. All right. So we ha- also have some injury news update. Dimebacks right-hander Dre Jamison will be undergoing Tommy John surgery, effectively knocking him out for the rest of this season and most likely all of 2024. Got Tori Lovello talking about the injury itself, and we'll have it play right now. Dre Jamison, as I mentioned, um, has been pulled off of his his, um, his rehab and is going to have Tommy John. So not great news, um, but uh, it is what it is. And Dre is resilient, and um, we're going to see him again. We need healthy, and he's going to help this team win a lot of baseball games for a long time. Um, I don't have a timeline. I don't know any of the details about who. I'll get that information to you as it comes to me. Um, he, I, you know, Dre would come to a lot of the games. I'd have some good face time with him, and he was really encouraged early on by the throwing program um, and his ability to, to let the ball go and, and be pain-free. I think when he stepped onto a mound that he just felt like he had nothing behind the ball. There was you know, not a lot of power, and I think the discomfort began at that point. It, that was the trigger for all of us that he should – Get reexamined, pull back, get reexamined, and see what's going on. Certainly, Tommy John was the best option. Either if if he was going to have Tommy John in, I don't know, if it was July or August. I don't remember exactly what it was. He's going to miss the majority of the 24 season anyway. So he felt like he wanted, and this is this is a championship mentality as far as I'm concerned. He's going to full throttle it to try and get back for us to help us win baseball games this year, test it out knowing that if it didn't work, he would still have the procedure and probably come back next August or September. So I think that that timeline in his head made a lot of sense. And I certainly appreciated the effort that he made to make it back, back here for us. So looking at what Lavelle had to say, I agree that I think there was not much risk for Jameson to try the rehab route because if there was any chance that Jameson could come back in 23, that would be more impactful than getting the surgery right away and maybe coming back at the end of 2024. So if we're talking about a decision of, okay, July 20, uh, not July 20, July 25th versus September 25th for getting the surgery. I think the key, if the D back see Jameson as a starter, I think it'd be best to hold him out until 25 because based on the number of days he spent in the minors, I think Jameson would most likely be better suited to start long-term 
because they'll have five years of control. It, it's gonna be close. I think it's gonna be pretty close to the 172 days because I think Jameson spent five weeks in the minors this year between uh, April 24th and May 25th. So that's 31 days. And looking at, so it's like looking at Jameson's service time number entering a season. Jameson had 21 days, so he will not. So it's actually quite possible. So based on the math, I think Jameson will have. 176 days in the majors, which I believe is a year. I could be wrong. We'll have to, so don't take my word for it. Since a year is 172 days. And then uh, subtracting the 180. Let me double check. Let me double check the math real quick. 183 minus 31 plus 21. So yeah, 173. So. It's quite possible that Jameson gets to one year. But if not, then he has f uh, six more years of control left. And you're going to lose one of them to Tommy John surgery anyway. So I think the key is making sure he's healthy for 2025 and beyond. Oh, wait, no, May 27th. That actually changes the math a little bit. So that put him at one, that may put him at 171. So he either is or isn't. Don't quote me on this with the uh, service time numbers. We'll find out at the end of the season. There are people that are much smarter than me, much more knowledgeable in this than I am with that, and we'll update the numbers in there. But otherwise, like I said, Diamondbacks still probably view Jameson as a starter long term. But the injury may precipitate a move to the bullpen, perhaps. If there is any chance he comes back in 24, because it's going to be pretty close. The 12 months will be towards the end of the season. However, based on the fact that 24, you may see Ciccone, Fott, Henry potentially establish themselves in the rotation, I think... Depending on what you see, then you probably would want to move Jameson to a reliever role. And for the most part, I think Jameson's the best suited of their pitching prospects to be in a high leverage relief role. So it'll be interesting to see how that turns out. All right. So one more thing I'd like to add also is uh, Gabriel Moreno has been arguably one of the most impressive players for the D-backs in the second half of the year. Since coming off the since coming off the injured list on August 13th, Moreno has arguably been D-backs most val valuable player. This is a time where Corbin Carroll's kind of faded and the extra base hit power hasn't come in there. Gurriel's been 
hadn't been on a downturn, but has been on fire of late. Walker in a little bit of a slump. So I'm going to compare the Dimebacks and the... Department. So if you look at there, we'll go. Since Moreno has 96 plate appearances, we'll do a minimum of 90. So you look at it there, Moreno's one B uh, F4, but I think uh, Fangrass punishes Moreno for framing, which, in my opinion, shouldn't be. Carroll's been uh, Carroll's been mostly relying on. Carroll's hitting 306 in that span while Moreno's hitting 333. Moreno's been hitting for some power, obviously. Uh, second, no, tied for third on the team in home runs behind Guriel and Pham. Oh, yeah, and Walker has six home runs as well, so tied for four, sorry. So four homers, the 16 RBI, and, of course, plays very good catcher defense. And I believe with Moreno, the D-backs have found themselves an all-star level catcher. And that's uh, something they haven't had since Miguel Montero in 2014. But you can argue they haven't had a catcher of Moreno's caliber since 2012 with Montero having an all-star season but not recognized for it. So I I look at the 2014 all-star selection as two years, uh, belated honors two years after the fact. But... uh, I think Moreno has the potential to be arguably the best catcher in Dimebacks history if we look at war. And I like using uh, baseball reference for this. You compare Miguel Montero. Uh, career in Arizona, Montero put up 13.6 war. I think Moreno can easily blow that out of the water if we compare. Because Moreno is war- has been, on baseball reference this year has been worth four war. And four war is a big deal, especially for a catcher. And four war for a catcher because that's in 101 games. Moreno has a 106 OPS plus, so that should tell you how much they like his defense. And Moreno leads all of Major League Baseball in defense-related war, so that's fielding plus position runs. 22 war, it also helps when you're the uh, best catcher at throwing out base runners. So you look at the uh, cuts. If you look at the uh, stolen base cuts, the only thing uh, opponents are thirty-two. Uh, he has thrown out twenty-two of fifty-four stolen bases, base attempts. That's forty-one percent leads the National League, and double the cut. Uh, double the cut stealing the league cut stealing rate. And he has one pickoff, which was Miguel Vargas in the Dodgers series. He backs had a challenge, but it didn't happen. Well, and only one pass ball, only one pass ball, so in his career. So the D-backs have, in my opinion, a catcher that can not only hit, but he can do it all. Can play, plays well behind the plate, calls a good game, handles pitching very well, and it's no surprise the D-backs are fifty-two and thirty-two in the eighty-four starts that Moreno's made behind the plate. With Moreno behind the plate, the Diamondbacks are basically a world beater kind of team. If they can get a competent backup catching where they're like five hundred, then the D-backs are. A team that I think can make some splashes down, make some splashes in the playoff picture. 
Uh, that's why I have Moreno as the next player the D-backs need to try and offer an extension to. Well, after they get Mike Hazen's extension done. So, a bit of rumors lately. Mike Hazen is linked to the Red Sox. I guess you can say the POBO or CBO, Chief Baseball Officer, President of Baseball Operations, which I call the POBO. Uh, so the Red Sox fired their guy, uh, Heim Bloom, for basically not being a miracle. For my opinion, not being a miracle worker. For Well, uh, miracle worker, and he'll always be remembered in Boston as the guy that traded Mookie Betts to the Dodgers. And sometimes it's like, I think it's a situation if the ownership gets in the way that it can be quite difficult for anyone to really run uh, run a team. But in Bloom's case, they got to 92 wins in 2021 and beat the Yankees in the division series, got to the ALCS before getting beat by the Astros. No, it was... We got to the World Series. Yeah, it was the Astros. Beat the uh, Rays in the ALDS. Lost the Astros in the Championship Series. Of course, the Astros would go on to lose to the Braves in the World Series. But the last two years, they've been under 500. My suspicion... uh, Like I said, the Red Sox are going to try and get... I think the Red Sox will be interested in getting Mike Hazen. Obviously, he's not the only name they're going to consider. Hazen's been, like in 2019, the D-backs uh, extended Mike Hazen after he was linked to the vacancy after the Red Sox fired Dave Dombrowski, who's now in Philadelphia. It could be the same thing all over again. Hazen's contract is set to expire after the 2024 season. And with the D-backs almost seemingly likely to make the playoffs this year, at their playoff odds basically no, being no worse than a coin flip, there, to case I could see Hazen using this news as leverage for contract extension, or maybe even a promotion. Maybe he and they try and give, try and get he gets the Pobo position of president of baseball operations. Be interesting. I could see that happening where Hazen gets the uh, president role, where and then uh, the D-backs uh, elevate somebody in their. Front office structure like Amiel Sade, maybe takes the everyday GM roles, where it's like you talk to the media, you make you talk to the other teams GM per se, while Hazen has the ultimate veto power on moves. But ninety percent of the work is done would be done by your GM uh, GM per se. But the big moves are big moves go through GM and ownership. That definitely be one situation to monitor. That's going to be an probably the biggest offseason headline for the Dimebacks, especially if Hazen gets Dimebacks in the playoffs. Although I think if Hazen gets Dimebacks in the playoffs, they should offer him an extension or promote an extension and or a promotion kind of deal. But like I said, it's eleven games to go. The Dimebacks probably staring down at an eighty-five, eighty-six win season, perhaps try and get into that postseason. And if they get into the postseason, obviously, I think they have to consider keeping 
keeping everything, keeping the continuity together and trying, hopefully that doesn't, with the continuity allow them to all make another run in 2024. So anyway, that's going to do it for today's episode. If you enjoyed, hit the like, subscribe. Do as that video shows. Hit the like button, subscribe. Turn on the bell for notifications. That way you don't miss an upload or a podcast episode for next time we go live. Like I said, my co-host West is feeling under the weather. So these next couple podcast episodes may be solo. We'll get figure out how that works out. We'll go by it day by day. Obviously, if you're on YouTube, we, there are some of the segments of the show will also be uh, the segments of the show will be clipped in there, so that way you don't have to sit through a 15-minute video. You can just watch a 10-minute video. There are also shorts from At the Ballpark, as, as I mentioned before. Credential beat writer for Inside the Dimebacks, which you can access at si.com slash mb slash Dimebacks. Check out some of the written articles that I put together covering the team. We've got a three-man team between myself, publisher Jack Summers, and also Jake Oliver. Does some work for us. You can follow me on Twitter at MikeMcDMLB. Also, same name on Instagram, although you're not going to find much interesting there. And uh, hopefully the D-backs take both games against San Francisco. We'll be back on either uh, back on Thursday. We'll see how everything goes there. Like I said, what, give an update on Wes before the show goes live. If he's still feeling ill, might just be me again. If I can't find a or bring in a guest, I don't know. But until then, go D-backs.